Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 151, The Birth of Historical Preservation in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about a period in the mid-19th century when some of Boston's most iconic historic sites and attractions were destroyed, or nearly destroyed. Starting with the Beacon Hill home of founding father John Hancock in 1863, and going right through the 20th century, Old South Meeting House, the Old State House, the Old Corner Bookstore, and many other buildings that helped lend Boston its unique character were threatened with demolition in the name of progress. After early losses, Boston was faced with the prospect of Midwestern cities like Chicago or St. Louis buying up and moving iconic buildings in order to save them from the wrecking ball. Through this threat, Bostonians learned to value their cultural heritage and banded together to protect early historic sites, especially those connected to the Revolutionary War that were important to all Americans. But before we talk about how Boston learned that the past is worth saving, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Remaking Boston, an environmental history of the city and its surroundings. While our main story this week is going to focus on the man-made landscape of Boston, highlighting what has changed and what we believe to be worth saving, this book takes a similar approach to the natural landscape. It's divided into sections about the harbor, the town and countryside, and the climate. This is a go-to source for me when I'm researching episodes like the story of the 17th century canal called the Motherbrook, or how the need for improved sewers helped inspire Boston's history of annexations. It's peppered through with illustrations, including maps, diagrams, and historic photos. In one effective sequence, the effect of climate change is illustrated by printing a series of photos showing natural processes. Azaleas blossoming in the arboretum, lady slippers blooming in the stony brook, or apples ripening for harvest. By printing a dated historic photo next to a dated modern photo of the same process, the authors create a vivid picture of our warming seasons with lady slippers that used to bloom at the end of June now peaking in mid-May, and apples that we used to pick in August now ripening in October. Here's an excerpt from the publisher's description. Situated on an isthmus and blessed with a natural deepwater harbor and ocean access, Boston became an important early trade hub with Europe and the world. As its population and economy grew, developers extended the city's shoreline into the surrounding tidal mudflats to create more usable land. Further expansion of the city was achieved through the annexation of surrounding communities and the burgeoning population and economy spread to outlying areas. The interconnection of city and suburb opened the floodgates to increased commerce, services, and workforces, while also leaving a wake of roads, rails, bridges, buildings, deforestation, and pollution. Profiling this ever-changing environment, the contributors tackle a variety of topics, including the glacial formation of the region, physical characteristics and composition of the land and harbor, dredging, seawalling, flattening, and landfill operations in the reshaping of the Shawmut Peninsula, the long-standing controversy over the link between landfills and shoaling and shipping channels, population movements between the city and suburbs and their environmental implications, interdependence of the city and its suburbs, preservation and reclamation of the Charles River, suburban deforestation and later reforestation as byproducts of changing land use, the planned outlay of parks and parkways, and historic climate changes, and the human and biological adaptations to them. 
If you're curious about the effect that both man-made and natural processes have had on the natural world underlying the city of Boston, we'll have a link to buy the book in this week's show notes. And since this week's episode is all about the early days of historic preservation, our upcoming event will highlight present-day efforts through the 2019 Preservation Achievement Awards. Here's how the Boston Preservation Alliance describes the importance of their achievement awards. Neighborhoods are living things. They evolve to the changing needs of their inhabitants. Rural farms become streetcar suburbs. Carriage lanes become roads. Thriving businesses fade. The buildings and places that survive these changes become natural points of reference for the neighborhood and vessels of collective memory. They're physical touch points for residents today and tomorrow. This year's cohort of award winners shows that historic buildings and parks can adapt to the changing neighborhood around them. Historic structures add a splash of uniqueness to a contemporary brand. As the historic structures blossom with new life, they add an extra layer to the collective memory of the neighborhood. Sometimes the best way to adapt is to restore and preserve, but with a focus on 21st century needs. The award winners illustrate that buildings designed for the needs of people from past centuries can be renewed to fit the needs of a contemporary world. When buildings are designed for people, they can continue to be used by people. Congratulations to all this year's winners, including 248 Newberry Street, 2101 Washington Street, Boston University's Dehad Family Alumni Center, Boston Volvo, Fowler-Clark Epstein Farm, the Longfellow Bridge, and the Senate Chambers. The 31st Annual Preservation Achievement Awards will be held on Monday, October 21, 2019 at the Revere Hotel at 200 Stewart Street in Boston. There's a reception starting at 5.30, the ceremony begins at 6, and the party will continue after the awards are bestowed. Stay to mingle, network, and congratulate the honorees. Tickets are $150 with a special rate of $65 for young professionals under 40 years old. Before I get on with the show, I want to take a moment to announce that Hub History is now available for you to subscribe to and stream on Spotify. Finally. It's the first of many improvements that we're hoping to make to the show thanks to the folks who support us on Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can help us offset the ongoing costs of hosting and securing our website and our podcast feed, as well as helping us work toward future improvements like a redesigned website and some upgraded audio hardware. We have special rewards for the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels of support, or as we like to call them, the Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams levels. You can find out more and support the show by going to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visiting hubhistory.com and clicking on the support us link. Many thanks to everyone who already contributes to help us make hub history. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Now that the kids are back in school, tourist season in Boston is drawing to a close. All summer, you've watched tour groups and families follow the iconic red line marking the Freedom Trail to Boston's most famous historic sites. Among those sites is Old South Meeting House, which boasts that it receives over 80,000 visitors a year. The congregation that built Old South dates back to 1669, when the population of Puritan Boston was growing rapidly enough to justify forming a third church. This third church, sometimes called the Cedar Meeting House, was built on land donated by the widow of John Norton, a pastor of First Church. Sixty years later, their original wood meeting house was decaying, 
so it was replaced by a new brick church on the same plot of land. That building, today's Old South Meeting House, was the largest building in town in 1729, and it served as a vital community meeting hall for the rest of the century. Over the years, it was where Samuel Sewell apologized to the Bay Colony for his part in the Salem Witch Trials. It was where Bostonians met each March to remember the victims of the Boston Massacre. And it was where Bostonians met in 1773 to debate what to do about three cargoes of tea that had recently arrived on Boston Harbor. After tensions with Britain erupted into war in early 1775, Redcoats took over the church building, covered the floors with soil, and used it as a riding school. When the British evacuated the next march, George Washington stopped at the church to observe the damage as he toured liberated Boston. Almost exactly 100 years after Old South was saved from the British, it was nearly lost to the auctioneer's gavel. On June 8, 1876, the building was sold as salvage for $1,350, with the provision that the whole thing should be demolished within 60 days. Four years earlier, Boston's Great Fire of 1872 had burned much of today's financial district. Through the heroic efforts of firefighters and the timely arrival of a new fire engine from New Hampshire, the Old South Meeting House itself was saved. However, so many parishioners lost their homes that it doomed the church. What had been a trickle of families moving from the old downtown district to the new and fashionable Back Bay became a flood. Even before the fire, the church had purchased a large lot of newly filled land in the Back Bay and planned to build a parsonage there. Now, with the flock quickly flocking to the new neighborhood, they built a new Old South Church on the corner of Boylston and Dartmouth Streets. That left the question of what to do with the original Old South Meeting House on Washington Street. With the destruction left behind by the fire, the U.S. Post Office asked to set up a temporary facility in the vacant church building. However, Mrs. Norton's will was quite explicit that the land she donated could only be used for religious purposes. It would take an act of the legislature to break this covenant, and that's exactly what the church leadership lobbied for and eventually got. In 1873, they were allowed to lease the property to the post office, and in 1874, leaders began pursuing the release of all restrictions on the lease, sale, and non-religious use of the property. After a few years of tense negotiation and debate on Beacon Hill, the measure passed in 1876. In the meantime, the value of the land the deserted church building stood on had soared to $400,000. Now, we've said before that it's hard to calculate the value of historic prices, but a simple inflation calculator puts that at the equivalent of about $9.6 million in 2019. A narrow majority of Old South's congregation voted to sell off the land at Downtown Crossing that they'd been given in 1669. In order to clear the valuable real estate, the worthless old historic church building had to be removed. Consequently, local newspapers soon carried an advertisement for the Old South Church Building. All the materials above the level of the sidewalks, except the cornerstone and the clock in the tower of this ancient and historical landmark building, which has now come under the auctioneer's hammer, will be disposed of on Thursday, June 8, 1876 at 12 o'clock noon on the premises on the corner of Washington and Milk Streets. The spire is covered with copper and there's a lot of lead on the roof and belfry, and the roof is covered with imported Old Welsh slate. Sixty days will be allowed for the removal. Terms, cash. 
When the appointed day came, there was an unsuccessful attempt to save the building. The auctioneer noted that the heart had been willing, but the purse was weak. The tower clock was immediately removed, and much of the lead and copper roofing began to disappear as well. The imminent demise of the Old South Meeting House now seemed inevitable. Three days after the sale, however, notice of a reprieve came in the form of a giant public notice on the church building's bell tower. The eleventh hour, men and women of Massachusetts. Does Boston desire the humiliation which is today a part of her history, since she has allowed this memorial to be sold under the hammer? Shall the Old South be saved? We have bought the right to hold this building uninjured for seven days, and will be conditionally responsible for the raising of the last $100,000 to complete its purchase. G.W. Simmons & Son, Oak Hall, Boston At least this time, Bostonians realized that Old South Meeting House was something worth fighting for. Thirteen years almost to the day before Old South went under the gavel, another shocking loss in Boston woke residents up to the idea that history was worth saving. Founding father John Hancock inherited a fortune from his uncle Thomas, including one of the finest mansions in all of Boston. Standing alone on the west slope of Beacon Hill, surrounded by pastures and orchards and facing the common, Hancock Manor was built in 1737 of hand-hammered granite, similar to what was used in King's Chapel. Some sources call it the first structure built of cut granite in North America. It, too, was occupied and vandalized by British troops during the Siege of Boston. Then, before, during, and after Hancock's term as the first governor of the Commonwealth under our 1780 Constitution, he hosted many dignitaries there, including the French Admiral D'Estaing in 1778, the Marquis de Lafayette in 1781, and George Washington on his first presidential visit to Boston in 1789. John Hancock died intestate in 1793. Multiple sources claimed that in his final hours, he had dictated a will that left his house and land to the Commonwealth, but that he passed away before it could be finalized and signed. Without a last will and testament, Hancock's estate went to his widow Dorothy, who in turn remarried one of John's sea captains. The estate grew smaller in 1795 when the town of Boston bought most of the land and set it aside as the site of our new state house, but the family did retain the mansion. By the mid-19th century, the lot the home stood on, at the top of now-fashionable Beacon Hill and right next door to the state house, was worth a small fortune. The Hancock descendants being in need of the money, they offered to sell the house to the Commonwealth for $100,000. In his 1873 book, Old Landmarks and Historic Personages of Boston, historian Samuel Adams Drake described the efforts to preserve the home. A strong effort was made to save this old New England monument, but without avail. It was proposed by Governor Banks in 1859 that the Commonwealth should purchase it, and the heirs offered it at a low valuation. A joint committee of the legislature reported favorably upon the measure, but it met with strong opposition from the rural districts and was defeated. Suggestions were offered to make it the residence of the governors, or a museum for the collection of revolutionary relics. The house was in excellent preservation the interior woodwork being sound as when the halls echoed to the tread of the old governor. The chamber of Lafayette remained as when he slept in it. The apartment in which Hancock died was intact. The audience hall was the same in which Washington, D'Estaing, Brousseau, Percy, and many more had stood. And finally, the entrance hall, in which for eight days the dead patriot lay in state, 
opened upon the broad staircase as in the time of old Thomas and Lydia Hancock. State action failing, some efforts were made by the city in 1863 to secure the relics of the building itself. The heirs offered the mansion, with the pictures and some other objects of historical interest, as a free gift, with the design of preserving it as a memento of colonial and revolutionary history. It was proposed to take it down and erect it anew on some other site. The land under the house was sold in February 1863, and the state legislature refused to appropriate the $12,000 it would have cost to move the house. That June, Willard Dalrymple purchased the building for $230 in cash, on the condition that he would remove it within 10 days. After a few days, Dalrymple had claimed everything he wanted, and advertisements and handbills announced a public auction. On Friday, June 26, 1863, at 4 o'clock p.m. on the premises, all the materials of the old Hancock House of revolutionary fame on Beacon Street, consisting of red cedar, oak joist, hardwood finished doors, panelings, carvings, windows, blinds, floorings, etc., comprising many antique curiosities and materials to be manufactured into many useful and ornamental parlor mementos, also the stone and brickwork, masonry, etc. After the sale, the 126-year-old home of one of America's most famous founders was demolished. A few souvenirs were plucked from the rubble, including the door knocker, which Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. installed in his own home, and the broadstone entry stairs, which were moved to Pine Bank in Jamaica Plain. Both the Holmes residence and Pine Bank have since been demolished. The site of the Hancock Mansion was used for two townhomes until 1916, when they too were knocked down to make room for the west wing of the newly expanded State House. After the loss of the Hancock House, citizens of Boston knew what a public auction pretended. So in clothing retailer George W. Simmons stepped in and put a seven-day hold on the sale of Old South Meeting House, Boston sprang into action. On June 14, 1876, George Simmons Jr. and Charles Slack, the editor of Commonwealth Magazine, organized an enormous public meeting at the meeting house. The pews were packed with Cabots, Lowells, and other Brahmins, while the proper ladies of Boston lined the balconies. The featured speaker was famous abolitionist Wendell Phillips, whose speaking style had earned him the nickname Abolition's Golden Trumpet. He mounted the pulpit, complete with the angled sounding board that you can still see there today, and delivered a passionate speech that might well mark the birth of the historical preservation movement. He said in part, Scholars have grown old and blind, striving to put their hands on the very spot where bold men spoke or brave men died. Shall we tear in pieces the roof that actually trembled to the words which made us a nation? Let these walls stand, if only to remind us that in those days, Adams and Otis, advocates of the newest and extremist liberty, found their sturdiest allies in the pulpit. Let the children of the pilgrims show that religious conviction, veneration for the great of old, and a stern purpose that our flag shall everywhere and always mean justice are a threefold cord holding this nation together, never to be broken. That night, donations were pledged, and 24 women were nominated as a citizens' committee to secure the preservation of the Old South Meeting House. They were able to buy the building itself for $3,500, and they got an extension from the Old South Society to give them until September 15th to raise the $400,000 required to buy the land. After September 15th, there would be no further extensions. On the day the deal was set to expire, the Boston Evening Transcript reported, 
The Standing Committee of the Old South Society held a special meeting this forenoon and voted to accept the offer of the Citizens Committee of $400,000 in cash for the Old South Meeting House. The offer was made on the second day of September after many consultations and was suggested by the Standing Committee. They wished to ensure the use of the building for historic and memorial purposes only, and today it was voted to accept the offer with a restriction that it should be used for such purposes only and not be open upon Sunday. A follow-up story that October detailed how the Citizens Committee managed to pay for this massive purchase. The sale of the Old South Church was formally completed Thursday morning for the sum of $400,000. A city life insurance company, New England Mutual Life, loans $225,000 upon the property, taking a mortgage. Mrs. Hemingway advances on a second mortgage the sum of $100,000, and Mr. R. M. Pulsifer, the purchaser, pays $75,000 in cash, making the amount of the purchase money. Mr. Pulsifer gives a bond to the Committee of Ladies to the effect that if they raise the money within a reasonable time, he will give them a deed to the property. Mrs. Hemingway there refers to the major Boston philanthropist Mary Tylston Hemingway. Over the next roughly 18 months, the Citizens Committee held balls, meetings, and other entertainments, eventually raising the money to purchase the structure back from Newton's Royal Pulsifer. At that point, ownership transferred to the newly created Old South Association, and the Old South Meeting House became a museum independent of Old South Church. You might think that the nation's centennial was a strange time to consider demolishing Old South one of the icons of the revolutionary generation. At the time, there were plenty of people who believed that the centennial was the perfect time to clear out the old to make room for progress. Even as the church was making its decision to divest itself of the old meeting house, the city was considering whether to demolish another Revolutionary War landmark. On April 27, 1876, the Boston Post reported on a special meeting of the Joint Standing Committee on Streets. It had been called to hear petitions by Boston's business leaders in favor of demolishing the old state house. The article reports on comments by Nathaniel Nash. This centennial year is just the time to advocate the tearing down of old landmarks. There are cases in which the wishes of the people must be subjected to necessity, and this seems to be one. Since the lease of the building, business on State Street has greatly increased, and the necessity for its removal yearly grows greater. By the removal of this old building, travel would be greatly relieved, property in the neighborhood would be increased in value, and the city would receive a greater revenue from the use of the land it occupies than it is at present receiving from rent. The removal of the building would give room for better accommodations to those in the immediate neighborhood who are pressed for business facilities. The increase in business and travel on State Street alone would seem to warrant the removal of the building, and at some future day it will surely be removed, if not at the present. The rest of the comments follow this theme closely. The location of the old State House forced a narrowing in State Street, which acted as a traffic bottleneck. By removing the historic building, the streets could be made wider, perhaps new offices could be constructed, and both businesses and the city would see increased revenues. If that sounds familiar, it's because much of Boston's current conversation about development often follows the same themes. Never mind the fact that the old State House was opened in 1713 and built on the location of the city and colony's original seat of government, which had opened in 1657. 
Never mind that the Boston Massacre had been carried out outside the windows on the very spot where business owners now wanted to expand the streets. And never mind that Boston had first heard the Declaration of Independence read from the balcony of that august building. It was slowing down traffic, so many people believed it had to go. The state government had moved up Beacon Hill to the new state house in 1798. After a 30-year period of commercial use, the old state house served as Boston's first dedicated city hall for a decade, before reverting to commercial use again in 1841. By 1876, the whole thing was wrapped in placards and business signs, and it looked more like a billboard than a treasured historical relic. Since the ancient building was considered ruined, what could be the harm in selling it off? As word of the potential demolition got around, cities that didn't have the same long, illustrious history offered to take it off our hands. An 1885 report shows how willing other cities were to step in if Boston was going to allow the old statehouse to be destroyed. It is not alone to its own citizens, but to the whole nation, that the city of Boston is accountable for the preservation of these mementos, known and venerated by the patriotic citizens throughout the country. That this feeling prevails was evinced within a year or two at St. Louis, where a distinguished citizen of that place expressed in the presence of several well-known Boston merchants his indignation, which was endorsed by several of his fellow citizens, that any proposition to remove the old State House or Old South Church could for a moment be listened to in Boston. And if it were, he expressed the desire to be afforded opportunity to raise a sum by subscription in St. Louis sufficient to purchase the old materials and re-erect the buildings in that city as cherished mementos of our country's history. A modern report by Sarah B. Chase records how this and similar offers helped jolt Boston's preservation movement awake to the danger faced by the old state house. It may well be that the demolition effort failed due to the offer of the city of Chicago to purchase the old state house, remove it piece by piece, and re-erect it on the shores of Lake Michigan. The vision of Boston's old state house sitting in Chicago seems to have shocked the local antiquarians into awareness of the serious decline of the building. In 1880, the city council considered ways to make sure the old state house building would be preserved. They considered asking the state to purchase the old state house, thus guaranteeing that no future city government could change its mind and decide to sell off the historic structure. Testifying before the council, antiquarian William Whitmore argued, The disposal of the building will come up next year. In 1881, these leases will expire, and in view of that fact and of the public uses to which the building might be put, I thought it desirable that this building, the only one of historical interest which remains in the possession of the city except one, should be put beyond the control of any one city government to remove or alter it. The city charter expressly provides that the common and faneuil hall cannot be alienated from the people. The old state house, it seems to me, should be in the same condition. There was never enough statewide support to get the Commonwealth to take over the old state house, but the city council found another way to protect the building. Starting in 1881, the city provided $35,000 through the Committee on Public Buildings to restore the old state house to its original appearance. They thought that Bostonians would be more likely to support saving the structure if it looked more like an early 18th century rarity instead of just another shabby downtown storefront. For most of the rest of the decade, antiquarian Whitmore engaged in a very public fight with city architect George Claw and historian George Moore over how to restore the building. 
I won't go into the details, but we'll have links to some of their mean and petty arguments in the show notes. At about the same time, a new organization was founded in 1881 to restore and preserve the old state house. Eventually known as the Bostonian Society, it took over day-to-day management of the building, transforming it into a museum of the revolutionary era. The new organization's 1885 annual meeting made it clear how seriously they took their mission. Bostonian Society President Curtis Guild thundered, It is an attack on the rights of the people to attempt, in opposition to their desire, to level with the dust the few great reminders of the early struggles of this country for independence, so that only the legend remains to perpetuate their memory. Taking the management out of the hands of the city council has served to protect the structure for nearly a century and a half. Today, the city still owns the building, while it's entirely managed and governed by the Bostonian Society. Ironically, the current special exhibit at the Old State House Museum is the original front door from John Hancock's mansion, which points out the importance of preserving the past for future generations. Boston learned from the lessons of Old South Meeting House and the Old State House, but we still lost many sites of historical importance over the years. The Old Feather Store, which dated to the 1680s, resembled the House of the Seven Gables, and stood near Faneuil Hall, was demolished in 1860. The 17th-century Paul Revere House and the mid-18th-century Shirley Eustace House were both buried under layers of modern improvements from the Victorian era until relatively recent times. From the Second World War through the 1970s, entire historic neighborhoods were bulldozed in the name of urban renewal. Even as recently as 2007, the city made the decision to knock down the Pine Bank Mansion in Jamaica Plain. Built in 1870 by some of those barons of the sea whom we discussed in our interview with Stephen Ujafusa way back in episode 89, Pine Bank was the only home that Frederick Law Olmsted decided to leave standing within the emerald necklace. After a series of fires, the city parks department let the building slowly deteriorate until it was too expensive to restore and too unsafe to leave. A historic building that stands at the corner of Washington and School Streets, directly between Old South Meeting House and the Old State House, helps to illustrate how challenging historic preservation continues to be in Boston. In 1711, religious dissenter Anne Hutchinson's early 17th century house burned in a large fire. Boston's original townhouse, the seat of government, burned in the same fire. Two years later, the site of the townhouse was reused for the new Massachusetts State House, which we know as the Old State House today. In 1718, Thomas Creese built a new house and apothecary shop on the former site of Anne Hutchinson's home. It served as a shop for merchants and apothecaries for about the next century. Then it was used by publishers and as a bookstore for most of the 19th century. The Scarlet Letter, Walden, Little Women, and Uncle Tom's Cabin were all published under the gambrel roof of what's now called the Old Corner Bookstore. Of course, Boston being Boston, the Old Corner Bookstore was slated for demolition in 1960, so we could free up space for a parking garage. A group of concerned citizens organized themselves as Historic Boston Incorporated. They raised enough money to purchase the building, now the oldest commercial building in Boston, restored it, and continued to use it for commercial purposes. Over the years, it was the Globe Corner Bookstore and a Boston Globe Company store. The building's more recent history both reveals the challenges of the Amazon era and indicates how hard it can be to find historically appropriate tenants for such a historic property. 
From 2005 to 2009, the old corner bookstore housed an ultra-diamond store. And today it's home to an authentic early 18th century Chipotle restaurant. However, in a nod to the building's historical nature, it's now hosting a pop-up workshop space for the North Bennett Street School. Prestigious North Bennett is one of the country's leaders in teaching traditional construction and craftsmanship techniques. Their students and graduates are involved in almost every historic restoration around Boston these days. They even constructed the exhibit at the Old State House displaying the front door of John Hancock's long-gone mansion. Located at 10 School Street, the workshop space is open from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on weekdays for a low-tech lunch. Visitors can watch demonstrations of traditional skills from bookbinding to woodworking with the next generation of preservationists. To learn more about how Boston learned to value its historic treasures, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 151. We'll have information about the North Bennett pop-up and the exhibit showing John Hancock's door at the Old State House. We'll have a link to an 1877 History of Old South Meeting House, which was written when the fight to save it was still a very recent memory. We'll link to Samuel Adams Drake's Old Landmarks and Historic Personages of Boston, which records the loss of the Hancock Mansion. And we'll link to press reports about the effort to have the Old State House demolished, plus all the rest of the sources I used this week. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Remaking Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show one day. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link, and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're excited that Hub History's finally carried on Spotify so you can subscribe in what's rapidly becoming the second most popular podcast app. You can also find us in Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more apps. You can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com or listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If that's how you subscribe, please consider writing us a brief review. And if you do, drop us a line. We'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about black politics and partisanship in late 19th century Boston with author Millington Ferguson Lockwood. <laughs>